Hey everybody, welcome back to American History. So in this podcast, we're going to look at colonization in the North. It's going to be in the same kind of time period as the last podcast looking at the South from 1600 to 1750 or so, but we're just looking at a different geographic area. So let's dive in. Jacques Cartier, he uh, first explored this land the French are going to call Canada in 1535 and he had sailed through the Gulf of St. Lawrence on the St. Lawrence River, but it's not going to be until 1605 the, fl- the French sorry, plant a permanent colony at Port Royal in Acadia, which is Nova Scotia. Three years later, Samuel de Champlain, he's going to establish Quebec further up in the St. Lawrence Valley. And he does this so he can pursue trade with less competition from European rivals. And Champlain, he's going to ally himself with the local uh, Algonquins and Mactignoy, and especially the Hurons. And the Hurons are a confederacy about 20,000 strong, and they have some towns near the Georgian Bay that oversee a vast trading network. And he wants to tap into that. So the Hurons, the Matignoy, and the Algonquins, they, you know, do have reason to embrace Champlain. Uh, The Frenchmen, like Europeans elsewhere in North America, you know, they come with luxurious textiles, glass, copper, ironware. At first, the Indians, you know, treat them as exotic commodities rather than, you know, utilitarian items. So... They might have been traded with the copper kettle. They might strip it, cut it into strips for jewelry making. But before long, metal tools the Europeans are trading with them transform native life. New knives make it easier to butcher the animals. Trees can be felled, you know, and buildings put up a lot more quickly and easily with iron axes rather than the stone ones they have been using for so long. Cooking is much more efficient. With brass kettles, you can just put directly on the fire. They would have like flint strike likes that take away the need to carry hot coals around everywhere. Beads, cloth, needles, thread allow for a new level of creative and visual expression. They travel farther than, you know, the uh, stone stuff had done the metal airheads you know make hunters and warriors more deadly than ever before and in return for these european goods the indians would then provide tens of thousands of pelts otter raccoon especially beaver and beaver is the only naturally waterproof skin especially or pelt sorry and Beaver pelts go into making uh, very fashionable European hats, mink and marten skins get sent to put on robes of high-ranking European officials and churchmen. And some of the French look at New France, this Canada region, as nothing more than, you know, a comptoir, a storehouse for, you know, just dead animal skins. But Champlain, he wants more. He's struggling to bring more permanent settlers to Canada and he wants to bind his native allies more firmly to the colonial project. So Champlain recruits certain French men and boys to live with Indian families, learn their language and customs and along 
with these boys and men that live with the Indian families, French authorities engage Jesuits, which are members of the Society of Jesus. These are missionaries and monks, just like the Franciscans, just a different order, uh, to establish missions among the Indians. And Jesuits are very much riled up with the passions of counter-reformation in Europe and the Counter-Reformation was a movement by very devout Catholics to try and correct the abuses that had prompted the Protestant Reformation in the first place. And at first the Indian allies of France tolerate the Jesuit missionaries, uh, listen to them very little. By the 1630s Champlain insists on training partners that allow the Jesuits to live among them. And more importantly, Christianized Indians will get better prices for their furs than unconverted counterparts do. Such policies uh, help the French pursue what they see as being this interlocked economic, strategic, and religious objectives. And among all the allies of Champlain, the Hurons are most reluctant to accept European customs and religion. Converts remain relatively few going into the 1640s. Debate over Huron cultural identity identity increasingly leaves this Indian confederacy fragmented and vulnerable to enemies. And so if Canada was, you know, a storehouse like so many people thought or considered it, it is a profitable one, you know, and the Dutch noticed that. By around 1600, the Netherlands possessed the greatest manufacturing capacity in the world and had become the key economic power in Europe. And because they enjoy prosperity and religious freedom at home, few Dutch people have very any desire to plant colonies abroad. They do want to tap into the wealth that is flowing out of North America and they lay claim to a number of sites around the Connecticut, Delaware, and Hudson Rivers. And most of it of New Netherlands, of their few settlers, clustered just in the village of New Amsterdam on Manhattan Island at the mouth of the Hudson. And New Amsterdam is later going to be renamed to New York City. And so the modern day state of New York was actually originally a Dutch colony called New Netherland. But by 1630, the very powerful Mohawks had come to dominate uh, the fort's commerce. And ever since their encounter with muskets, the Mohawks and other four members of the Iroquois League, which are the Senecas, the Cayugas, the Onidas, and the Onondagas, they all suffer from lack of direct access to European tools and weapons. And so at Fort Orange... The Iroquois finally find that access. As the beaver population, which had always been fragile, it collapses within the Iroquois territory. The League then uses their new weapons to go on the offensive against their northern enemies. To maintain their trading position, they prey on Huron convoys on their way to Quebec and then sell the stolen pelts to the Dutch. And just as this old rivalry is reviving, a smallpox epidemic breaks out and waves of disease take a nightmare's toll, especially in Indian agricultural communities that had very densely populated towns. Uh, between 1634 and 1640, the disease will kill more than 10,000 Hurons, 
reducing the total population by half and it precipitates an influx of conversions to Christianity that divide the community. And the Iroquois uh, suffer greatly as well, but unlike the Hurons, they react by waging war in an effort to try and get more captives that would formally replace the dead family members. And there ends up being a series of skirmishes and conflicts known as the Beaver Wars. And the Beaver Wars, they transform the whole colonial north as much as the Indian Slave Wars had in the southeast. And in attempts to try and replenish their diminishing population, Iroquois raiders attack people near and far uh, after the Hurons. They uh, scatter the nearby Petons, Eries, and Neutrals. These are people like the Huron. They spoke Iroquian. They could be integrated into Iroquois communities with relative ease. And so that's why they raided those people. But the Beaver Wars will continue in like fits and spurts for the rest of the 17th century, provoking massive refugee crisis as families flee their traditional territories and try to rebuild their lives. The wars also very nearly ruin New France. About 300 Frenchmen are killed or captured. It cuts the population in half, the colony's population in half, by 1666. French authorities try to find reliable new partners in the fur trade. They become less reluctant to trade guns to the Indians as a result. And by the 1660s, French traders, peace, priests, sorry, and officers are making some headway among refugee villages in the Western Great Lakes. As they do this, they start exploring the biggest watercourse in North America, the Mississippi River. And the Mississippi River travels nearly 2,500 miles from the source in present-day Minnesota all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico and all along the way is carrying water from several major rivers that feed into it and it dominates a drainage area that's larger than the entire Indian subcontinent in Asia. Very, very big water course. And as the French start exploring it in earnest, it dawns on them, you know, the Mississippi Valley might be the key to their success in North America. French officials uh, do court Indian peoples along the river and the tributaries. They put in hard-won sites into native diplomatic culture all along the way. And a man named René Robert Cavalier, the Sieur de La Salle, most people just call him La Salle, uh, he became the first European to descend the Mississippi River all the way into the Gulf in 1682 but he encounters Natchez, Chickasaw, and others that hadn't seen Europeans since DeSoto and his maniacal march nearly a century and a half before. Other Frenchmen build up trading posts and simple missions. They may even make contact and some tentative alliances with uh, natives like the Osages, Arkansas, Autos, Pawnees, various others west of the river. And then there's the colonization of New England. Yeah, so this starts with a king that chose his enemies rather unwisely, good old James I, uh, shortly after he had succeeded Elizabeth I in 1603. He vows to purge England of all the radical Protestant reformers 
and the radicals he has in mind are the Puritans. Most of these are either Presbyterian or Congregationalists, which, remember, the Puritans are kind of have some subsets. So the larger singular is Puritan. Offshoots of that, you have the Presbyterians, like Scottish Presbyterians, and then you have the Congregationalists. The Congregationalists have another group that split off and go to the Netherlands, right? And they are known as the Separatists, aka the Pilgrims, that we know from Plymouth, right? And then there are the other Congregationalists, which will later found Massachusetts Bay Colony, that we know formally as the Puritans. All right, so both groups of Puritan reformers did embrace Calvin's ideals. They differ on the best form of church organization, though. So Presbyterian churches, they're, you know, guided by higher governing bodies and ministers and laypersons. And the Congregationalist churches, they believe each congregation should just conduct their own affairs independently and answer to no other authority. So like all Christians, Protestant and Catholic, the Puritans believe God is all-knowing and all-powerful. Like all Calvinists, the Puritans emphasize the idea of divine sovereignty known as predestination. The center of their thinking is the belief that God has ordained the outcome of history, including, you know, the eternal fate of everyone. Puritans find comfort in their belief in predestination, and it's because it provides, you know, them with meaning and purpose. So they feel assured knowing that, you know, a sovereign God is directing the fate of everyone. And Puritans want to try and play their part in this divine drama of history and discover in their performances some sign of personal salvation. And the Church of England counts as its members everyone in the country, saint and sinner alike. And to the Puritans, belonging to a church is not a birthright. They want to limit membership and the privileges of baptism and communion to godly men and women. The Puritans highly despise hierarchy of bishops and archbishops in the Church of England, as well as all these elaborate ceremonies where the priests are wearing these very intricate and ornate robes and such. Too many Anglican clergy in the eyes of the Puritans, they're like, they're just dumb doggies. They're too poorly educated to instruct churchgoers in the truths of scripture or deliver even a decent sermon. And English monarchs refuse to take stronger measures to try and reform church and society. So the Puritans become their most outspoken critics. Elizabeth had tolerated the opposition, but James is not going to endure it. And he intends to rid England of all of these radicals. So with the separatists, you know, some of the Puritans kind of seems like he succeeds a little with that. So the separatists, they are devout Congregationalists that come to the conclusion the Church of England is too corrupt to be reformed. They abandon Anglican worship altogether. They will meet secretly in their own small congregations. They first appear in England during the 1570s. And they suffer persecution from the government, fines, imprisonment, even execution in a few cases. By 1608, some have become so discouraged that they will migrate to Holland, the Netherlands. The Dutch government permitted complete freedom of religion. 
So when their children start adopting Dutch customs and other religions, some separatists decide to move again, this time to Virginia. In November 1620, there's about 88 separatist pilgrims that say anchor for the Mayflower ship at a place they call Plymouth on the coast of present-day southeastern Massachusetts. They're going to be sick with scurvy, weak from malnutrition, shaken by a mutiny that was on board the ship, and the time of year, the season, and the site itself that they land does not invite settlement. Very few pilgrims could have foreseen the founding of the first permanent European settlement in New England. Many do not live long enough to enjoy that. You know, they arrive too late to plant crops. They fail to bring an adequate supply of food. By the spring of 1621, half of the immigrants had died. English merchants who financed the Mayflower voyage failed to send supplies to the struggling settlement. Plymouth might have just become another failed colony, except the pilgrims get better treatment from their native inhabitants than they did from their English supporters. So only four years after or before their arrival, uh, coastal New England area was racked by a massive epidemic, possibly plague. It's unsure what exactly the illness was. The losses varied locally, but overall the native coastal population may have been reduced by as much as 90%. You know, it's difficult to know the actual numbers. But abandoned villages lay in ruins all up and down the coast. Uh, The pilgrims established Plymouth at the village of Patuxet. And years later, visitors are going to marvel at just the heaps of unburied human remains that date from the epidemic. The Wampanoags are the ones that dominate the land all around Plymouth. Still kind of reeling from the loss in 1620, they're very eager to obtain trade goods and assistance from native enemies, but Massasoit is the Wampanoag chief. He agrees to help these starving colonists. And at first, they're going to communicate through a Wampanoag Indian named Squanto. And Squanto was kidnapped by English sailors prior to the epidemic He's taken to Europe, he learns English, he returns to America in time to act as a mediator between Massasoit and the pilgrims. And they accept the hospitality instruction. They invite the native leaders to a feast in honor of their first successful harvest in 1621. And that is where we get the first Thanksgiving story. But the Pilgrims, they had already set up a government for their colony on the Mayflower. And the framework of this is known as the Mayflower Compact. So it provided for a governor and several assistants to advise him. All will be elected annually by the adult males of Plymouth. And in the eyes of English law, the Plymouth settlers actually had no clear basis for their land claims or government because they didn't have a royal charter or approval from the crown. But since the English authorities are distracted by some issues closer to home, they just kind of leave this tiny colony of illegal farmers alone. And among the distractions of the crown are two groups of Puritans more numerous and influential than the pilgrims were. 
They include both Presbyterians and majority of Congregationalists that still consider the Church of England capable of being reformed. But the 1620s brought the Puritans fresh discouragements. You know, 1625, Charles I inherits his father's throne, all of his enemies, Parliament attempts to limit the king's power. Charles I just dissolves it in 1629 and starts ruling without it. When the Puritans try and press for reform, the king then starts working against them. And this persecution then causes a second wave of Puritan migration that draws from the ranks of Congregationalists, which they're going to be a little different. These will include merchants, landed gentlemen, lawyers that will then all organize the Massachusetts Bay Company in 1629. And these able Puritan leaders, their goal is to try and build a better society in America the city on the hill, if you will, that will serve as an example to the rest of the world. And they have a very strong sense of mission and destiny, unlike the separatists. And they say, we're not abandoning the church. We're just regrouping across the Atlantic on this side for another assault on corruption. And despite the company's Puritan leanings, they somehow get a royal charter confirming title to most of present-day Massachusetts and New Hampshire. Uh, some advanced parties in 1629 will establish the town of Salem, well north of Plymouth on the coast. In 1630, the first governor is a uh, visionary lawyer named John Winthrop. He sails from England with a dozen other company stockholders and a fleet of men and women to then establish the town of Boston. And once they're established in the Bay Colony, Winthrop and the other stockholders transform the charter of their trading company into the framework of government for a colony. The governor, his assistants, the free men together will all make up the general court of the colony. And the general court is the one that passes all the laws, levies taxes, establishes courts, makes war and peace. And in 1634, the whole body of the freemen stop meeting, and instead, each town will elect representatives or deputies to the general court. Ten years later, the deputies form themselves into the lower house of the Bay Colony Legislature. The assistants form the upper house. By refashioning a company charter into a civil constitution, Massachusetts Bay Puritans are then well on their way to shaping society, church, and state to their liking. And contrary to expectations, New England actually proves to be more hospitable to the English than the Chesapeake area did. The character of migration itself gives these New England settlers an advantage because most of them are arriving and family groups, they're not arriving as young, single, indentured servants that have been settling in Virginia, for instance. But there's going to be pretty massive, rapid colonization. Most of the immigrants, about 21,000, come in a cluster between 1630 and 1642. New arrivals taper off because of the outbreak of the English Civil War. And it's relatively rapid colonization that creates solidarity. And that's because the immigrants all share this common past of persecution and a strong desire to try and create 
an ordered society that is modeled on biblical scripture. Puritan immigrants and their descendants, they thrive in the healthy climate, for the most part, in New England. The first generation of colonists lived to an average age of 70, nearly twice as long as Virginians and 10 years longer than men and women living in England. 90% of all offspring are reaching adulthood. Typical family is going to consist of seven or eight children who come to maturity. Because of low death rates and high birth rates, the number of New Englanders doubles about every 27 years. Populations of Europe and Chesapeake are barely reproducing themselves. By 1700, New England and the Chesapeake both have populations of around 100,000. The southern population grows because of continuing immigration and importing slaves, but New England's population growth is mainly from natural increase. And early New Englanders, uh, they create most of their settlements with an eye to stability and order. Unlike Virginians, who had, sorry, da, 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 da. gotta get back to my notes here. So Virginians, sorry, they were scattering all across the Chesapeake in these isolated plantations. Most New Englanders were creating very tight-knit communities, like ones they had left behind in England. So they're trying to stick with kind of the same format that they had, not create something entirely new. But strong family institutions definitely contribute to the order and stability of New England. Early deaths of parents uh, often regularly split apart or splintered Chesapeake families, but in New England households, more often than not, you had two adult generations on hand to encourage order and stability. Husbands and fathers, they want submission from their wives, very strict obedience from children. Land gives the long-living men great authority over their grown children. Sons and daughters rely on these paternal legacies of farms in order to marry and establish their own families. Uh, churches themselves, they're pretty few and far between in 17th century Virginia. But the church is the center of community life in colonial New England. Individual congregations run their own affairs and regulate their own membership. If you want to join, you have to convince ministers and church members you had experienced a genuine spiritual rebirth or conversion. And most New Englanders are seeking out and winning church membership. And churches, since they are these majority institutions supported by public taxes, they have the reach and resources to oversee public morality. They would often censor or cast out any wayward neighbors. Ministers enjoy less public power in New England than in, they had in the old country, though. But the ministers in New England don't serve as officers in government. The Congregationalist churches own no property, whereas, you know, Catholic and Anglican church officials back in the European states, they held a lot of power and the churches tended to hold very large tracts of land. And finally, New Englanders, uh, they govern themselves 
more democratically than their counterparts did in England. So communities all throughout the region, they hold regular town meetings of all the resident white men. The town fathers generally set up the agenda for the meeting. They offer advice, but any decision had to have unanimous consent of the townsmen. The colony governments in early New England also evolved into representative and responsive institutions. Typically, the central government of each colony, like the General Court of Massachusetts Bay, had a governor and a bicameral or two-chamber legislature, which included an upper house or council and a lower house or assembly. All the officials were elected annually by the free men, which were white adult men entitled to vote in the elections. Voting qualifications varied, but the number of men enfranchised with the right to vote made up a much broader segment of society than you saw in 17th century England. And most New Englanders called themselves Puritans and Congregationalists, but the very fervency of their convictions often led them to disagree about how to carry out the teachings of the Bible and Calvinist ideals. During the first decades of colonization, there's going to be a lot of disagreements that lead to the founding of breakaway colonies. So in 1636, Thomas Hooker, he's the minister of Cambridge, Massachusetts. He's going to lead part of his congregation to establish the first English settlement in Connecticut. Somewhat more liberal than other Bay Puritans, Hooker favors more lenient standards for church membership. He's also very opposed to the policy of limiting voting and colony elections to church members. But uh, New Haven, which was a separate colony until it becomes part of Connecticut in 1662, was begun in 1638 by very strict congregationalists that found Massachusetts to be too liberal. And while Connecticut and New Haven emerged from that voluntary migration, enforced exile is going to fill Rhode Island with men and women whose radical ideals unsettle the rest of Massachusetts. But Roger Williams, he is the founder of Rhode Island. He came to New England in 1631, serving as a respected minister of Salem. He soon announces that he is a separatist. Like the Pilgrims of Plymouth, he encourages the Bay Colonies to break all ties to the Church of England that he says is corrupt. He's also going to urge a more complete separation of church and state than most New Englanders were prepared to accept. Later in his career, he will endorse full religious toleration. And finally, Williams is going to denounce the Bay's Charter, which is the legal document that justifies their whole existence. On the grounds the king had no right to grant land he had not purchased from the Indians. So when Williams uh, suggests Massachusetts actually inform the king of his mistake, some very angry authorities prepare to deport him. So instead, Williams will flee the colony in the dead of winter to live with the Indians. In 1636, he becomes the founder and first citizen of Providence, later to be part of Rhode Island. And there's going to be another charismatic heretic from Massachusetts that arrives in Rhode Island soon after. Her name is Anne Hutchinson, very skilled midwife, spouse of a wealthy merchant. She comes to Boston in 1634 and very enthusiastic for her minister at the time, John Cotton. He's a very famous uh, Puritan minister during this time. 
but it starts her on the course of explaining his sermons to gatherings of her neighbors and then elaborating with ideas of her own. And the fact that a woman would do such things makes the authorities uneasy. They become very alarmed when they learn Hutchison was embracing controversial doctrine. So soon a majority of the Bay ministers accuse Hutchison of holding heretical views. She denounces her detractors and the controversy just escalates at that point. In 1638, the Bay Colony government will expel Hutchison and her followers for a sedition. She settles briefly in Rhode Island before moving on to Long Island where she will die in an Indian attack. The life in colonial New England offers women, especially married women, very little scope for their talents. Most adult women are hardworking farm wives who care for large households of children. Between marriage and middle age, most New England wives are pregnant except when breastfeeding. When they're not nursing or minding children, mothers are producing and preparing much of what was consumed and worn by their families. They plant vegetable gardens, prune fruit trees, salt beef and pork, press cider, milk cows, churn butter. They might be beekeepers for honey, tending poultry. They cook, they bake, they wash, iron, spin, homemade yarn, weave, sew, very monotonous humdrum routine. While husbands and sons emerge in farm work that changes with the seasons, uh, they'll maybe take trips to taverns and mills, go off to hunt or fish. But the wives and daughters are housebound. They're very locked into a humdrum routine. Very little time for themselves. Communities sometimes respond to assertive women with accusations of witchcraft. Like most early modern Europeans, New Englanders believe in wizards and witches. Men and women who are said to acquire supernatural powers by signing a compact with Satan or the devil. A total of 344 New Englanders will be charged with witchcraft during the first century of colonization. The Notorious Salem Village episode takes place in 1692 and it has the largest outpouring of accusations and there are 20 executions that take place in Salem alone. More than three-fourths of the accused witches are women usually middle-aged and older. Most of those accused are accused, sorry, are regarded as being unduly independent. You know, how dare they be independent women? Before they're charged with witchcraft, many have been suspected of heretical religious beliefs, others of sexual impropriety, but many others had inherited or stood to inherit property, and that was unacceptable to the New Englanders at the time. But at the time of first contact, there's around 100,000 Algonquin men and women living in the area, reaching from the Kennebec River in Maine to Cape Cod. Like the Puritans, they rely on fishing in spring and summer, hunting year-round, growing and harvesting corn and other crops in spring and fall. To an even greater degree than among the colonists, Indian political authority is local. Within each village, a single leader that's known as the Sachem, S-A-C-H-E-M, uh, directed all the economic life, carries out justice, negotiates with other tribes and English settlers, and 
As with New England's town fathers, a sachem's power depends on keeping the trust and consent of his people. English expansion in the region had to come at someone's expense, right? Colonists obtained Indian lands in one of three ways. Sometimes they bought it. They purchased it. Sales varied. They might be free and fair, fraudulent, subtly coerced, or forced through intimidation and violence. Second, colonists would expand into lands that were emptied by epidemics. Third, colonists would commonly encourage and participate in regional wars to obtain land. And it was kind of easy enough to do because Indians in New England fought frequently with neighboring nations. But throughout the wars between colonists and Indians, the colonists more and less nurtured their original alliance with Massasoit and the Wampanoags. Certain colonists tried to bring the two societies closer together. The impulse to convert is not nearly as strong in New England as it was in New Spain or New France. Very few Englishmen work tirelessly to bring the word of God to Indians. That's not a huge reason they're doing this. Or a huge reason they're colonizing. Sorry. Puritan minister John Eliot, he starts preaching in Algonquian language in the 1640s. Over the next two decades, he oversees a project to publish the scriptures in Algonquian using the Latin alphabet. He's going to train hundreds of native ministers who many who will become literate and establish seven villages or praying towns for christian indians and he's not alone in 1665 harvard college that it was known at the time establishes an indian college and dormitory on campus none of these efforts embody respect for indian culture or religion some new englanders at least wanted to assimilate indians rather than just drive them away but by 1675, pressure by the Puritans for more land convinced Massasoit's son and heir, Metacom, whom the English had called King Philip, that his nation can be preserved only by chancing war. Complaining that the English are applying to kill him and other sessions to replace them with the Christian Indians more willing to sell land, Metacom's able to rally most of southern New England's native people and lays waste to more than two dozen towns in Plymouth Colony. By the spring of 1676, Metacom's warriors are raiding settlements within 20 miles of Boston, and this offensive threatens New England's existence. So, faced with shortages of food and ammunition, Metacom asks assistance from the Abenakis of Maine and the Mohicans of New York both refuse. In the summer of 1676, Medicom will die in battle. The colonial forces bring his severed head to Boston and his hands to Plymouth as trophies. Not good stuff to talk about, not fun stuff, you know, but it's what happened. And his desperate gamble pretty much exhausts the native military power in southern New England and pretty much destroys the Wampanoags as a coherent people, unfortunately. By the 1660s, the Dutch experiment on the mid-Atlantic coast is failing. Fort Orange continues to get furs in the Dutch West India Company. The colonial population, though, remains very small. The company makes matters worse by appointing corrupt dictatorial governors that rule without an elective assembly. It provides very little protection for the outlying Dutch settlements when it does attack 
neighboring Indian nations, it does so very savagely. It triggers some pretty terrible retaliations. And by the time the company goes bankrupt in 1654, they have pretty much abandoned their American colony. So taking advantage of all this disarray in New Netherlands, Charles II ignores the Dutch claims in North America and he grants his brother, James, the Duke of York, a proprietary preliminary charter there. The charter grants James all of New Netherlands to Delaware Bay as well as Maine, Martha's Vineyard, and Nantucket Island. In 1664, James will send an invading fleet whose mere arrival causes the Dutch to surrender. And so now New Netherlands is New York. And it, because there is a lot of diversity here, it makes it very difficult to govern. So the Duke of York, James, he inherits about 9,000 9, 9, or so colonists, Dutch, Belgians, French, English, Portuguese, Swedes, Finns, Africans, some of which are enslaved, others are free. And since there's a lot of ethnic diversity and shores a variety of religions, the Dutch Reformed Church uh, does predominate there, but other early New Netherlanders, others that included uh, Lutherans, Quakers, Catholics, Jews as well, refugees from Portuguese Brazil, uh, and they're required by law to live in a ghetto in New Amsterdam. The Dutch resent English rule, and only after a generation of intermarriage and acculturation and assimilation does that resentment fade. James fails to win friends among New Englanders that come to Long Island seeking autonomy and cheap land during the 1640s. He will grudgingly give in to their demand for an elective assembly in 1683, but rejects their first act, the Charter of Liberties, which would have guaranteed basic political rights. And there's constant chronic political strife that discourages potential settlers. By 1698, the colony is only around 18,000 people. New York City, formerly New Amsterdam, was an overgrown village of just a few thousand, basically. But the lands lying west of the Hudson River and east of the Delaware River these were part of the Duke of York's grant. In 1664, he gives about 5 million of these acres to Lord Berkeley and Sir George Carteret, two of his favorites already involved in the colonies of the Carolinas. New Jersey's new owners guaranteed settlers land, religious freedom, a representative assembly in exchange for a small uh, rent or an annual fee for the use of the land. The terms of the proprietors uh, draws Puritan settlers from New Haven, Connecticut. At the same time, unaware James had already given New Jersey to Berkeley and Carteret, the governor of New York, Richard Nichols, grants uh, Long Island Puritans some land there. Yeah. More complications ensue when Berkeley and Carteret, they decide to divide New Jersey into East and West and sell both halves to Quaker investors. Uh, some... English Quakers migrated to West Jersey, but the investors very quickly decide two Jerseys are less desirable than just one Pennsylvania. And so they resell both East and West Jersey to speculators. In the end, the Jerseys uh, become just this 
mishmash patchwork of religious and ethnic groups. Settlers share a common religion or national origin and they form communities, establish small family farms. The crown will finally reunite East and West Jersey as a single royal colony in 1702. But New Jersey is overshadowed by settlements, you know, now north, south, and west of them. So, religious and political idealism similar to that of the Puritans will inspire the colonization of Pennsylvania. Makes it an oddity among all the mid-Atlantic colonies. So, it begins when their founder, William Penn... When he was young, he devotes his early years to disappointing his very distinguished father, Sir William Penn, who's an admiral in the Royal Navy, several years after being expelled from college. The young William Penn will finally choose a career that may have made, you know, his admiral father just yearn for disappointment. But he undertakes a lifelong commitment to put into practice Quaker teachings. By the 1670s, he had emerged as an acknowledged leader of the Society of Friends, as the Quakers called themselves formally. The Quakers behaved in ways and believed in ideas many people would consider odd. They dress in a very deliberately plain and severe manner. They withhold from their social superiors the customary marks of respect, like bowing, kneeling, removing your hat. They refuse to swear oaths or to make war. They allow women public roles of religious leadership, and the pattern of behavior reflects their egalitarian ideals, the belief that all men and women share equally in the light within. Some 40,000 English merchants, artisans, and farmers embrace Quakerism by 1660. Many will suffer fines, imprisonment, and corporal punishment. And since the English upper class has always valued and prized eccentricity among their members, it's not surprising that Penn becomes a favorite in the court of uh, Charles II. And the king, his favor then takes a very extravagant form of presenting Penn with all the land between New Jersey and Maryland in 1681. And Maybe the king was repaying a pen for the large sum his father had lent to the Stuarts, which were part of the royal family. Uh, The king maybe was hoping to just export the Quakers of England to America uh, to be governed by his very trusted personal friend. You know, we don't know quite for sure. But Penn had a vision that his colony would provide a refuge for Quakers while producing rents for himself. To publish his colony, publicize it, he distributed pamphlets praising attractions throughout the British Isles in Europe, and the response is overwhelming. By 1700, the population stood at 21,000. And this early migration of equal magnitude was maybe like the Puritan colonization in New England. And perhaps half of Pennsylvania settlers arrived as indentured servants, while families of free farmers and artisans made up the rest. The majority would be Quakers from Britain, Holland, and Germany. Colonists also included Catholics, Lutherans, Baptists, Anglicans, and Presbyterians. In 1682, when Penn purchased and annexed the three lower counties, which would later be the colony of Delaware, his colony 
will include about a thousand or so Dutch, Swedes, and Finns that were living there. And West Jersey, Maryland, New England, uh, Quakers from all these other colonies that I mentioned will also flock to the new homeland of Pennsylvania. And the experienced settlers brought skills and connections that contribute to rapid economic growth of Pennsylvania. Farmers uh, turn their rich land into a big sea of wheat. The merchants that then export to the Caribbean. And the whole center of the Pennsylvania colony's trade is Philadelphia. It is an excellent natural harbor situated at the Delaware and Schuylkill Rivers. It's spelled S-E-H-U-Y-L-K-I-L-L. Not quite sure how to pronounce it. You know, I'm probably butchering the pronunciation, but who wouldn't, right? Farmers, uh, they didn't really need to cluster their homes within a central village, and that's because they are at peace with the coastal Indians, known as the Lenapes, also called the Delaware Indians by the English. And thanks to two Quaker beliefs, commitment to pacifism and that conviction that Indians rightfully own their land, the peace endures between native inhabitants and the newcomers in Pennsylvania. Penn would purchase land from the Indians. He prohibits sale of alcohol to the tribe. He very strictly regulates the fur trade and will even learn the language of the Lenny Lenape Indians. But his colony suffers from constant political strife. Rich investors who he had rewarded large tracts of land to and trade monopolies dominate the council and hold the sole power to create and initiate legislation. And this power in Penn's own claims as proprietor ends up setting the stage for controversy. Members of his representative assembly fight for the right to create legislation and the farmers very much oppose Penn's efforts to collect quitrants or rents. The three lower counties uh, fight for separation. Their inhabitants feel no loyalty to Penn or Quakerism. And Penn finally gets peace at the price of approving a complete revision of his original frame of government. So in 1701, the Charter of Privileges, the new constitution of Pennsylvania, strips the council of their legislative power, leaving it to the council just as a role of advising the governor. The charter limits uh, Penn's privileges as proprietor to ownership of ungranted land and power to veto legislation after an elective unicameral assembly. The only single house legislature in the colonies uh, dominates Pennsylvania's government. So gradually the interior of Pennsylvania is filled with immigrants, mainly Germans and Scots-Irish that didn't harbor any odd quote-unquote ideas about Indian rights. And the Lenny Lenape's other native people get bullied into moving further west. And William Penn returns to England and he spends some time in a debtor's prison after being defrauded by his colonial agents. And he dies in 1718, a notion away from his utopia he had tried to create. And until Parliament passes the first Navigation Acts in 1660, England had not even set a real coherent policy for regulating all the colonial trade. The Acts didn't produce the desired sense of patriotism in the colonies. Uh, Chesapeake planters fighting over custom duties, they levied on tobacco. Uh, New Englanders 
that are kind of the worst of the lot at this time ignore the navigation acts altogether and trade outright and openly with the Dutch. Royally appointed proprietors uh, will increasingly meet defiance in New York, New Jersey, the Carolinas, and Pennsylvania. And so the crown has to take matters into their own hands if they want to prosper from the colonies like the Spanish monarchs had. So the crown finally does this in 1686 uh, at the urging of the new King James II, formerly the Duke of York. The Lords of Trade will consolidate the colonies of Connecticut, Plymouth, Massachusetts Bay, Rhode Island, and New Hampshire into a single entity to be ruled by a royal governor and a royally appointed council. And by 1688, James will add New York and New Jersey to this entity called the Dominion of New England. And James will abolish all northern colonial assemblies, you know, showing it that typical Stuart distaste of representative government. And the king's aim to try and control and centralize, centralize authority over such a large territory makes the Dominion not only a royal dream, but a radical experiment in English colonial administration that fails miserably. And in England, James II reveals himself to be yet another Stuart who tries to dispense with Parliament and has embraced Catholicism as well. But in a very quick, bloodless coup d'etat known as the Glorious Revolution, Parliament will force James into exile in 1688. In his place, they will elevate to the throne his daughter, Mary, and her Dutch husband, William of Orange and they are collectively known as William and Mary. And Mary is a very different sort of steward. She's a very staunch Protestant. She agrees to rule with Parliament, so she's very different than her former family members. William and Mary will officially dismember the Dominion of New England and reinstate representative assemblies everywhere in the Northern colonies. <laughs> Connecticut and Rhode Island are restored their old charters. Massachusetts gets a new charter in 1691. Under its terms, Massachusetts, Plymouth, and present-day Maine are combined into a single royal colony headed by a governor appointed by the crown rather than elected by the people. And the charter imposes religious toleration and makes property ownership rather than church membership the basis of voting rights. William and Mary are more political than James II, but they're no less interested in revenue. In 1696, Parliament enlarges the number of customs officials stationed in each colony to enforce the Navigation Acts. To prosecute smugglers, Parliament will establish colonial vice-admiralty courts uh, to prosecute these smugglers. And these vice-admiralty courts, they're tribunals without juries presided over by royally appointed justices. To keep current on colonial matters, the king appoints a new board of trade to replace the old lords of trade. The new enforcement procedures generally succeed in discouraging smuggling and channeling colonial trade through England. And these changes strengthen the royal control enough to satisfy English monarchs for the next half century. By 1700, Virginia, New York, Massachusetts, and New Hampshire all have royal governments. New Jersey, the Carolinas, and Georgia soon join that list, and royal rule means the monarch appoints governors, and everywhere except Massachusetts will also appoint their councils. 
Royally appointed councils can veto any law passed by a colony's representative assembly. The royally appointed governors can veto any law passed by both houses. And the crown can veto any law passed by both houses and approved by the governor. So, even so, the sway of royal power remains more apparent than real after 1700. And the Glorious Revolution asserts once and for all that Parliament's authority, uh, ruled by the legislative branch of government, would be supreme in the governing of England. And in the colonies, members of representative assemblies grow more skilled at dealing with royal governors and more protective of their rights. They guard most jealously their strongest level of power, which is the right of the lower houses to levy taxes. And that is going to play very important when we get into the podcast talking about leading up into the American Revolution. So I hope you guys enjoyed this podcast and stay tuned for more American history with Professor Cheryl Boswell. See ya.